Good morning, Grace Assembly. So glad that you can join us on this Palm Sunday. I pray that God will be able to reach your heart and touch you in, in some very powerful ways, even though our sanctuary is spread out all over the city and all over the state and from what we have uh, received in feedback all over the nation. We're so glad that you joined us here today. On this Palm Sunday, as we begin to turn our attention to the beginning of what we know as Passion Week, the final week of Christ's life and ministry, we are reminded, as we have just heard our worship team so eloquently lead us in worship about, about the love of Jesus Christ, how much He loves us, and the links that He will go to redeem us from our sin. This morning, for the next few minutes, I would like to talk to you about a culture collision, which is really what took place on Palm Sunday, a collision of, of different cultures, a collision of thoughts and ideas and themes that took place and how God used that to begin to bring us to a place of redemption. Wherever you are this morning, I want to invite you, if you would, just to take your Bibles, if you would, and, and keep them close by so that you can follow along in the Scripture with us. I'm going to be reading a text this morning from the book of Mark, chapter 11. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. This is what the Scripture says. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just tell them that the Lord needs it, and he will send it back shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks in the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning recognizing that you alone, through the work of your Holy Spirit, begin to unlock the truth of your word to our hearts. And I pray today that wherever people are listening, whatever they are going through, whatever situations they may be facing or whatever moods they may be in, that today, through your word, you will reach them and that they will come to a deep understanding of the love that you have for humanity and everything that you have done to bring us into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man who told a story about his mother-in-law, and she was driving in a really, really bad rainstorm. She didn't want to stop on the road because she was afraid that whoever was behind her might run into her. And so she felt the safest thing for her to do was to get as close to the car in front of her so that she could see their taillights and she would just follow them wherever they went. After a few minutes of very careful driving and concentrating on those taillights, she was stunned when the driver in front of her suddenly got out of the car, turned off his lights and came running back to the car. As she opened the window a little bit, he asked her, Can I ask you, ma'am, why you have followed me all the way into my driveway? 
If you're going to follow somebody closely, you might want to know where they are going. As we approach Holy Week and we look at it through the lens of Scripture, we see that Jerusalem was about to become the epicenter of a collision of powers and ideologies and religions and traditions and passions. The story of the triumphal entry of Jesus is, is one of contrasts. And it's in the examination of those contrasts that people are required at some point to look at this information and make a choice about who they will follow and where the truth really lies. Palm Sunday is a collision of themes and cultures. In this story, the story of the king who came as a lowly servant on a donkey wearing clothes that would be worn by those that were poor and humble in the day. Jesus Christ comes not to be a conquering force as earthly kings had come, but he came to be a king that would win people by love and grace and mercy and by his own sacrifice for his people. His is not a kingdom of armies and modern weapons and intimidation, but his is a kingdom of humility and servanthood. He doesn't come to conquer nations and grab real estate. He chooses rather on focusing the winning of hearts and the minds of individuals. His message is that through me, you can have peace with God. I was at the grocery store yesterday and had one of the employees that knew me say, Pastor, you need to pray for our community because the people that are talking to me are constantly saying we are living in fear. She said, people are so afraid. I am so glad today that in the middle of our fear, we have a Jesus who has come to bring peace to our hearts and to bring peace through him so that we can have peace with God. Over the next few minutes, I want to review three different cultural collisions that took place on this Palm Sunday. There's first of all the collision of privacy and praise. There was the collision of politics and passion. And there was the collision of plot and prophecy. The first is the collision of privacy and praise. You might recall that there are several times as you read the New Testament during the three-year ministry of Jesus where he performed miracles. And then at the end of performing those miracles, he asked those people if they would try to keep it private or not tell anybody. And he asked that they would maintain a level of secrecy about it. In Matthew 9, 25, Jesus puts the crowd out of the house so that they couldn't see and hear what he said. And then he raised a ruler's daughter to life. In Matthew 9, 29, it said, Jesus was followed by two blind men that were asking to be healed. And he said, according to your faith, it will be done for you. And their sight was restored. And then Jesus warned them sternly, it says, see that nobody knows about this. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 41 through 44, Jesus heals a man from leprosy. And he sent him away with a strong warning, Scripture says. See that you don't tell anybody about this. In Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 43 is the account of the daughter of Jairus being raised by Jesus. And after doing so, he gave strict orders not to let anybody know about this. In Mark chapter 7, verses 32 through 36, Jesus puts his fingers in a deaf man's ear and he touched the man's tongue and he is healed. And then he commanded the crowd that saw this all happen not to tell anyone. 
I've always kind of looked at those scriptures and smiled thinking, if your life was healed and dramatically changed, how in the world would you keep that silent? How would you keep that a secret? And I wonder, why did Jesus tell in the early part of his ministry and as he was doing these healings for people not to tell anybody, why did he ask them to keep it a secret? I think we find a clue in the account of the leper who is cleansed. And even though he was told not to mention it to anybody, in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, it said, instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And then the scripture says this, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. If his miracles were widely known, they would attract so much attention and create so much excitement that wherever he went, he would be overwhelmed by crowds and it would limit his opportunities to speak the truth and to teach the people the way he wanted to. And so he was asking people, please hold this to yourself. Please, in this moment, would you keep and maintain a privacy? But on this day, this Palm Sunday, as Jesus' earthly ministry is nearing an end, it is no longer necessary for people to hold their praise, to get an understanding of the current events that had taken an effect on people. They were looking at Jesus, understanding that he had just, in a very public way, the most public way up to this point, raised Lazarus from the dead. And in a change from previous settings, he did it in a public setting and he let everybody see and told nobody to keep it quiet. Things were beginning to change. People as a result of this and seeing what he'd done in the life of Lazarus and raising him from the dead were dropping their old belief systems, the traditions that had never given them any life and are now following Jesus in record numbers. This was aggravating the chief priests and the Pharisees. In fact, it tells us in John 11, 45 through 48, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And they said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nations. And then to top it all off, Luke describes the public adoration and the praise that was beginning to be given to Jesus as he's entering in when he says this. When he came near the place where the road goes to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, that if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So we see the first collision to take place is the privacy of Jesus versus the public praise that he is now allowing. The second collision that took place is that of politics and passion. In the book, The Last Days, that was written by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, they described how there were actually two processions on Palm Sunday. 
There was a military procession that came in from the west side of the city that was led by the Roman governor Pilate. Pontius Pilate entered Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. Pilate's military procession was a demonstration of both Roman imperial power and Roman imperial theology. It was a standard practice of the Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem whenever there was Jewish festivals. They wanted to be there in case there was trouble, just to keep an eye on things. In fact, the Roman garrison was permanently stationed on a hill overlooking the Jewish temple and the courtyards where they could see everything that was happening in the temple and its courts. You have to imagine the people that were there that day as this procession is coming in from the west. As they arrive in the city, it's a show, a visual show of imperial power that was intended to intimidate. Yet cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles. The sun is reflecting on the metal and the gold. There's the sounds of marching of feet, the creaking of armor, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, and the swirling of dust as the soldiers are marching on. And in the eyes of all of the onlookers, some of them were curious, some were awed, some were resentful. But they came with a show of power to keep the peace. According to this theology, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but he was the son of God. And so for the Rome's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession embodied not only a rival social order, but it was also a rival theology. On the eastern side of the city came another procession. In this one, Jesus entered on a donkey. Jesus came in the name of the Lord. He came with a set of values that stood in contrast to the Romans. Jesus came committed to service and humility. Jesus comes in the opposite gate to proclaim another kind of peace altogether. Not a peace through intimidation, but a peace through justice. Unfortunately, the praise that the people lavished on Jesus was not because they recognized him at this point as their savior from sin, but they welcomed him out of their desire that he might be the messianic deliverer. There were so many who, although they did not believe in Christ as savior, nevertheless were celebrating and praising him that day with hopes that perhaps he would be the great military deliverer. These are the ones who hailed him as king with many hosannas, recognizing him as the son of David who came in the name of the Lord. So here comes the Romans from the western gate. And here comes Jesus from the eastern gate. And the people expected that there was going to be this political collision where Jesus would lead a revolt and overcome the oppressors. But when he failed to live up to their expectations... Those who hailed him as a hero would soon reject and abandon him because he didn't meet their expectations. So Palm Sunday represents a collision of politics of the Romans and the passion of Jesus. The third collision that took place was the collision of plot versus prophecy. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for several reasons, but very high up on the list are the widespread, diverse, and testable prophecies that in spite of impossible odds 
are fulfilled, sometimes hundreds of years after the prophecies were first recorded. Daniel had predicted 530 years before Palm Sunday of the coming of the awaited king. This was fulfilled precisely on that Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. Jesus could not have humanly engineered timing with such scope. But the writer that we were listening to today in Mark focused more on the prophecy from the book of Zechariah, who wrote his prophecy some 407 to 520 years before this day, and explicitly tells us when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, he was fulfilling the prophecy that Zechariah had given. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this fulfillment that the gospel writers proclaim didn't impress some of the people for the simple reason that it seemed too easy. Some of them thought, this is just a plot to fulfill prophecy. And so there were those that believed that the whole story of Jesus, the whole life of Jesus, is just a plot. They thought all he really needed to do was just read Zechariah and recognize that to get a fulfillment, all he would need to do is to ride a donkey into Jerusalem and the Jewish people would be so hungry for a leader that it would be easy to feed their Passover exuberance. In fact, we later learn as we go on in Scripture that this plot went so far that after Jesus was crucified and put into the tomb, they had authorities place a seal on Jesus' tomb so that his disciples wouldn't steal his body and proclaim a resurrection. But it was after Jesus was resurrected and it became obvious that this was not a plot and as they begin to look at the records and the testimony of those that witnessed it, Matthew said they couldn't recognize that this was a plot, so they had to lie to keep this plot theory alive. And it tells us that the scene on that Easter morning was that the women had come and recognized the tomb was empty. They had seen Jesus. They'd grabbed his feet and had worshipped him. And Jesus told them to go and tell the other disciples. And then it tells us in Matthew 28, 11 through 15 this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city to report to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him to keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. I want to read to you the original prophecy of Zechariah in its context, and consider such a Passover plot conspiracy in light of it. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation in Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12, and it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph! O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt, 
I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon." Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. What jumps out at me at this prophecy that was written 500 years before this day is what is spanning in just a few sentences and how it is revealed in Jesus' actions. In verse 9, it says, the king enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Verse 10, it says, then his rule will extend to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 11, it says, and God will seal this covenant with blood, such as the prisoners of death will be freed. Zechariah saw something and predicted something, a far greater scope than just Jesus' entry into the city on a donkey. According to Zechariah, tied with this entry would be a new worldwide program, as well as a new destiny for prisoners of death. And as we read that, we think, who might that be? That is us. We are all prisoners of death. Zechariah was writing 2,500 years ago about you and me. He was telling us that somebody was going to come who would free us from this prison. And a few short days after Jesus rode into Jerusalem atop the donkey on Palm Sunday, he did indeed inaugurate a new covenant that he literally sealed with his blood. And three days after that, he rose from the dead. The doors of that prison of sin and death, which holds all of us, was busted open and we were given hope because of what Jesus accomplished. And as we look at this today, given that Zechariah was right on with both the details and the outworkings of that entrance on a donkey, doesn't it simply reason that we can continue to trust that the future coming of Jesus will come to pass as well? And when it does, I want to be part of the believers that will meet Jesus in the air. This humble vision of Jesus riding this colt into Jerusalem will one day be changed. You talk about a contrast as intimidating as the Roman parade was and all of the things that you can imagine as they came in to intimidate, I want you to think for a moment about what John's vision was as he wrote Revelation. Here's what he said in Revelation 19, projecting the future when Jesus comes again. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. What a vivid contrast we see in Jesus' return with all of his angels compared to his entrance into Jerusalem upon a donkey. There is coming a day when he will no longer be coming humbly on a donkey, but Jesus will return on a fiery white stallion bringing judgment just as he promised. And the important thing for each of us today on this Palm Sunday as we look at the celebration of Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem that we call the triumphant entry is have you allowed him to make a triumphant entry into your life? There's so many contrasts that take place and I understand that there are so many of you that are living in fear, not only of what's going on around the world, but I believe that that fear is birthed in the fact that so many of you just are not comfortable yet in knowing where your eternal destiny lies. I trust that it's during this Holy Week, and perhaps even this message today, that there's an unlocking in your heart as you recognize that the prophecies of Jesus' coming was to set you free as well as to set me free. Before I pray for you today, I want to share with you these things that you need to know about eternal life, and then I'm going to pray for you. Number one, eternity is a great gift, and eternal life is what is given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a free gift to you, that God has given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's because of this gift and because it cannot be earned and it cannot be deserved, there's no amount of personal effort or good deeds or good works or religious things that you can do to ever earn it. It simply is given to you as you believe and trust in Jesus Christ and His work for you. Secondly, we need to know that as human beings, we are all sinners. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And because of this, we all owe the penalty of sin, which is death. You cannot save yourself. However, in spite of your sin, God has come to us in a very merciful way. Therefore, he doesn't want to punish us, but God is also just, so he must punish sin, which is the purpose of Holy Week, as Jesus steps into our place and takes our sin upon himself so that he can trade our sin for his righteousness. So we have a problem with sin that only Jesus Christ could solve for us. And the Bible tells us that this infinite God-man, Jesus came to earth and he lived a sinless life. But while he was on earth, he died on the cross so that you and I could be set free from the prison of death that we heard prophesied by Zechariah. And today this gift is received simply by faith. Faith is the key that opens the door to heaven for you. Saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for what he has done rather than what you can do. And when you repent of your sin and you ask Jesus to come into your life and cleanse you, he will take up residence within you and give you a new destiny and a new hope that you could never have earned on your own. And so I would like to lead you in this prayer today. And if you are feeling the tug of the spirit today and you've been so captured by the fear of everything that's going on, can I tell you today that peace for you is one prayer away? And so if you close your eyes and join me, let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of eternal life. I know that I am a sinner and I know that I do not deserve eternal life. But you loved me, so you died and you rose from the grave to purchase a place in heaven for me. I now trust you alone for eternal life. 
and I repent of my sin. And I ask that you would take control of my life and would you deposit in me as a newly saved person, newly born again, newly trusting and follower of Jesus Christ, would you give me the peace that surpasses all of the world's understanding? I mean this with all of my heart and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed that prayer with us this morning and you truly have meant it, there's a number that you have seen already during the message and it's on our screen right now. We would ask that you would please give us a call. We have people that are waiting to pray with you, waiting to give you some directions and next steps as you begin uh, to walk with the Lord and become a follower of Jesus Christ so that you can grow and enjoy great fellowship with others. I pray today will be a day that will change your destiny and has changed your eternal life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.